Well, we come again this morning to our Old Testament survey, and there is a handout. Uh, if you don't have a handout, please raise your hand uh, really high so that the man in the back can get you a copy uh, so that you can follow along uh, and aid you in our studies. I've tried to give enough room so you can take notes if you want to. We come this, this morning to the last book of the Old Testament, but not the last book of our survey of the Old Testament. And I'll leave you with that comment, and you'll have to wait till I come back again to find out exactly which book, if I don't already know, I have yet to cover. But, uh, Lord willing, uh, this morning, I want to look at this book and draw from it truths for us today. Uh, Malachi was among three of the post-exilic prophets, that is, the three prophets that spoke after the exile and the people had returned to uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And those three prophets are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And Haggai and Zechariah, you'll recall, were used of God as preachers, as prophets, to help the people of God continue the work of building the uh, temple and uh, rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem so that the people of God could reestablish uh, relationship with him through those means that he had provided and, and appointed, that is, through worship at the temple. Malachi comes along and he's going to continue that as we, as we look at his prophecy. Uh, one man put it this way, the prophet's words, and this is just, if you will, let me just say just something about uh, prophets in general and what their, their role was among the people of God. And this is the way uh, Paul House summarizes that. The words interpreted, the words of the prophets interpreted the past, gave meaning to the present, and instilled hope for the future not because they were particularly gifted speakers or because they had some particular eloquence or anything, but because they were, as he said, the very words of Yahweh. These are God's words. And the prophets came uh, with two basic purposes. Their purpose and their, their writings were transitional, what I call transitional and eschatological. That is, they came to the people of God at a point when they needed to change. Something needed to change. And so they often are calling them to repentance, calling them back to work, calling them to do what they have left off doing. And we see that especially with Haggai and Zechariah. They came at a transitional point. But they also came with an eschatological picture. The kingdom of God has waned in a, as a physical kingdom. It has gone down and down and down to the point where God has, has cast the people out into exile and, as, all, as it were, dissolved his nation, but hasn't forgotten his people. And at the same time, through the prophets, we have this eschatological kingdom, this picture that the kingdom is yet to come, is going to, get, is going to, is going to come, and this picture gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And so this is what we see in the prophets, this eschatological, this future, this study of last times, the kingdom is yet to come. So as we begin then to look at Malachi, if you'll notice with me, read, if you have your Bibles open to Malachi, so if you turn to the middle and go back a little bit, or turn to the New Testament and go back to the left a little bit, you'll come to the book of Malachi. And the first sentence, the first verse says, The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel through 
Malachi. So who wrote the book of Malachi? It's one of the few books that uh, I've read in terms of reading all the books that I have that didn't spend a whole lot of time uh, saying that it was written three times or by two different people. Or there, there's only two possibilities. It was either written by Malachi or is written by somebody called My Messenger. Malachi is unknown. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures, though his, his uh, prophecy is quoted in the New Testament. He's never named in the New Testament. He's named nowhere else in the Old Testament. His name literally means my messenger. The little I at the end is the, is the, the way that he says my. So this is the messenger of me, God's messenger. And if you look over at chapter 3 and verse 1, you'll notice a similar phrase. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. And some people say, okay, so this is the messenger. This is, it's just a generic messenger that wrote this, and not particularly a man named Malachi. Though chapter 3 and verse 1 is not talking about this prophet, but it's talking about somebody who's yet to come. All right, so uh, almost all of the books that I read came back to the fact that said the most simple and easy way to understand this is a man named Malachi, whose parents named him my messenger, wrote this book. So when was Malachi written? Well, there is no explicit statements in the whole book to give any kind of dating uh, that would make it simple. No king is mentioned, no time is mentioned, uh, but there are some indications which highlight for us some of the things which help us to see where, when, when it was written. It's obvious, as we re- when we read through the book, we'll find out that the temple is, has been built. It's been rebuilt, and they're engaged in worship. The priests are engaged in the, in the sacrifices at the, at the altar in the temple, and so therefore, it's, it's a matter of uh, uh, something after the temple had been built during Ezra's time. At the same time, it's, uh, the practice of, that was initially probably zealous has waned. Uh, there's, there's, a, there, there's laxity and there's other things we're going to see that have slipped in. They're not as zealous as they once were in the worship of God. If you look at various passages here, and again, I'm just, gonna, I'm just doing some overview here. We'll go back to some of this. But if you look through your, your, your Bible there in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, you see something about marriage and mixed marriages that are described there. And those mixed marriages are also the kind of marriages, says married to a, a foreign uh, woman of a foreign god or daughter of a foreign god. These are also the kinds of things that we see in, in Nehemiah chapter 13. The failure to tithe is found in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And that same sin is addressed in Nehemiah chapter 10, or excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 10 to 14. As well, the corrupt, the corrupt priesthood that existed during Malachi's time that he's addressing in chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9, you'll notice he says several times, to the priests, O oh priests, O oh priests. And so he's addressing these priests. They're not acting as they should. They've corrupt, they're corrupting the worship of God. And that's also something that we see in Nehemiah's time. And again, in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 7 to 9. As well, we have some social problems that are similar social problems. Look with me at Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5. And he mentions a number of commands of God that are being, uh, evidently in his day, being the sins that are being committed, and God is going to be a swift witness against sorcerers, 
other sources of, of uh, power and authority, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. And these are similar sins and social problems that were occurring in the day of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 5. So we have the temple uh, services that are going on. We have these sins which match up with Nehemiah's day. And we also have a word that is the word governor. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 8, and it says that they're presenting their sacrifices. He says, why not offer it to your governor? There's a governor who is requiring from them these taxes or these uh, Animals that are supposed to be given to him for some for his for his own food, possibly as we see in the in the days of Nehemiah. And but this is a term which is a technical term which is used particularly for this Persian period, as a number of the men point out. And if you were to do a word search, and I'll say go take you know take out your your. Bible app or go to your concordance if you still have one of those sitting on your, on your shelf somewhere and open up and look up this word governor and look up the Hebrew word, you'll find out that it appears mostly in Ezra, Nehemiah, and during the time of Haggai and the times of the kings that would have been similar to these Persian times. So Malachi then, putting all this together, prophesied during the post-exilic, that is the return after the exile period. As one man put it, he is a child of the Persian period. His ministry is usually assigned to the time corresponding to or coinciding with Ezra and particularly Nehemiah in Jerusalem, and that puts him somewhere between 500 to 475 B.C. To whom then was Malachi written? So we were this man named Malachi, my messenger, God's messenger has come. He comes and he speaks. He speaks during this time when there is a restoration, but there's still uh, sins abounding among the people of God. To whom was Malachi written? Well, notice with me right there in verse 1 is the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel. And you think, okay, it's the northern kingdom. But really, it's not the northern kingdom. This is Israel being spoken of as a whole, as the whole nation. Uh, we see in chapter 1 and verse 2, he talks about them in terms of Jacob I have loved versus Esau and Edom. And so we're going clear back to Jacob and those who were the descendants of Jacob. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he's speaking to, uh, to and about Judah. And then he speaks about Israel. And he speaks about Jerusalem. And again about Judah. He speaks in chapter, excuse me, that's chapter 2 and verse 11. Chapter 2 and verse 12 speaks of it in, them, in terms of the tents of Jacob. Chapter 3 and verse 6, he speaks of the sons of Jacob. And then he says in chapter 3 and verse 9, when he's talking about the tithing problem, notice what he says. He says, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And so he's not talking just about the northern kingdom, just about the southern kingdom. The kingdom he's talking about is God's people descended from Jacob, Israel, and all of those who would be noted as the 12 tribes that were cast out of the land, both Judah, the south, and Israel in the north, and they have been brought back. And so it's all the people of God. But then there's a particular focus in chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 7. Notice chapter 1 and verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if a father... If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says Yahweh of hosts to you, O priests. 
who despise my name. And again in chapter 2 and verse 1, now this commandment is for you, O priests. And he brings back the memory of a former priest, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. So this is what you're supposed to be doing, but aren't. And so the priests have a prominent role here in the prophecy of Malachi. Then finally, why was Malachi written? What historical purpose could it have? If you were a Jew and you wanted to know something of the history of Israel, what what purpose could it possibly have? Well, it's very difficult to find any historical narrative in the whole book. And so uh, to try to say there's a historical point that can be made, that's very difficult to find. And yet, it does show the danger of uh, the ever-present apostasy. Even in a people who have experienced the judgment of God and the restoration of God, there's still the danger of sin and apostasy. And so in that sense, a historical warning is, as, as one man had said, I don't know who said it, it's just been something that's been stuck in my mind, we're only one generation away from apostasy. One generation, and it could all be gone. And we see that in the people of Israel. And we see it over and over again in the people of Israel. And yet we see it over and over again in the people of Israel, which means, though they apostatized, or came very close, God kept his people. It was a wonderful blessing to recognize, even in the face of that great danger. But then there's a number of theological truths which are highlighted in this book, and, and he wants us to see something of this. Uh, he speaks of Yahweh of hosts 24 times, and Yahweh several other times. He speaks of him as the God of Israel, chapter 2 and verse 16. This is, a, this is a word from the true and the living God who makes covenants and keeps covenants. He's going to talk about those covenants and their response, the people's response to those covenants. Malachi wants them to think back over the history of this is the God that is speaking to you today. In the very opening words, uh, he, he, he starts off with this wonderful statement, I have loved you. So wow, what a, what a comforting word. Is this the way Malachi is going to go? He says, but you have said, how have you loved us? What, you doubt me? You see, this is, this is the challenge, but it starts out, we're to know that God is a God of sovereign, and he goes on to talk about Esau versus Jacob and Edom. He says, he says uh, I'm a God of sovereign love, of electing love. And he wants them to remember that right up front. In chapter 1 and verse 6, God is a father and a master to his people. He's both a father, but he's also Lord. He's the one who gives them directions that they are to obey. In chapter 2, in verse 10, he describes himself as a father, their father, and creator. And so he's also the supreme God who created all things, but he's also their father. It kind of sounds like Jesus' words, doesn't it? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Both the greatness and supremacy of this God, and yet the tenderness of a father. In chapter 2, verse 17, and in chapter 3, we have God setting himself forth as the God who is just. And he wants them to understand that he is just, though they doubt his justice. And this wonderful statement in chapter 3, and verse 6, we just recently heard about the immutability of God in the adult class. And here's one of those, those passages, for I, Yahweh, do not change. And the sinner says, that's a danger to me. 
Because if he's holy and righteous and perfect, and he says, I do not change, O sons of Jacob, therefore you are not consumed. <laughs> In other words, what did I tell you at the beginning? My love has not changed. I am the same God today that loves you as I was in the past. And so he's a God who does not change, particularly in his love, but he does not change in any of his aspects of his character or his attributes. He's a God who is honest, chapter 3 and verse 13, and he speaks to them, your words have been arrogant against me. What, we have, spoke, what have we spoken against you, he says. But this God is just open and, 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 and transparent. He's, he's communicating with them, if you will. That's the, the final point here. This whole thing, the whole prophecy is written as a personal conversation between God and the people. Although the people aren't there, they're just hearing God speak about what they think. And so God is speaking to his people. He's honest, he's transparent, he's open with them and, and speaking with them. And his sovereignty extends to all the nations. We see that when he speaks of Edom in chapter 1, verses 5 and 11 and 14, or chapters 1, 3 through 5. And in chapter 3, 12, he talks about the nations. The nations are going to see this. The nations are going to be part of his purposes. So theological truths, a wonderful study of God uh, in the book of Malachi. It's worth reading it just to say, what does it tell me about who God is? Now remember that in Jesus Christ, we have those words that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we should go back and say, this is my God. And learn from Malachi. But then there's also some ethical purposes to the letter. Why was Malachi written? Well, it's got some ethical purposes. Uh, Again, one of the books I read said this, In some ways, the warnings and promises of Malachi brings to his contemporary, the, the warnings and promises Malachi brings to his contemporaries have such a continuing relevance that his exact historical context is not a matter of vital importance. Well, we know it's not a matter of vital importance or God was saved it for us. But the fact of the matter is, he says, the things he talks about are so obviously relevant. And we don't need to necessarily have to have a history of when this took place. These things are always relevant. We're going to see, when we look through this, we're going to see that there's an enforcement of the regulative principle found here in this book. That principle that God determines how he is to be worshipped and Men should approach him according to his standards. We see as well descriptions of marriage. Marriage as a a sacred covenant blessed by God, an honorable union between a male and a female, a man and a woman for the purpose of fellowship and establishing a family. We see something of that to establish. It's a covenant Promises that are made, those vows are, are central to, to the wedding, not just the wedding, but to the, to the marriage. Marriage is given as, as, a, as a covenant where there's stipulations and, and promises made. And, and then also it's in the context of reflecting God's covenantal relationship with his people. Just, I can't stress enough how, how much... How, how serious it is to make vows and to make covenants, to make promises. God takes them very, very seriously. And when we come back, Lord willing, when we get back to, to another one of the books, we'll see where a covenant was made with a, with a pagan nation, and it was a covenant that really shouldn't have been made, but it was made. And then they didn't keep it. And it led to severe consequences. They made a vow, they made a covenant. They were to keep that. 
But then the final thing that we see in all of this is that God directs their hearts to himself. Malachi really keeps pointing them through this uh, dialogue that takes place, directing their hearts to God. In the end, he says, you need to fear Yahweh. Sincerity and purity are important. But fearing the Lord is essential. Without purity, impurity is something which God judges. And insincerity is something which God despises. And what we've learned again from this book is that God knows the hearts of men. And he's going to expose their hearts as we go through this book. And maybe he'll expose something of our hearts as well. Well, there's much Christology, and there's much about Jesus in this particular book. There's the coming of Elijah, who will precede the coming of uh, the Messiah, this uh, Elijah that's described in chapter 4. Is it chapter 4? Get my passages right here. Hmm. Yeah, 4 5. Thank you. There it is. Okay, I wasn't looking far enough down. 4 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before coming of the great and terrible day of, the, of Yahweh. So there's a day of judgment coming. He says, yeah, Elijah's going to come first. He was, Elijah was very bold in confronting religious and political sin in his day. He had a practical message of repentance of sin for the people of God in his day. And he stood outside of the normal, traditional society. Sound like anybody? Sounds like the one that Jesus called in Matthew chapter 11, Elijah, namely John the Baptist. Right? And so John the Baptist is this Elijah. He's the fulfillment of this Elijah that is to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And I believe in chapter 3 in verse 1, when he says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger... I believe that this is a reference, this my messenger is a reference to John the Baptist, and he will clear the way before the Lord. Just like Isaiah says, there's going to be a voice coming in the wilderness. He's going to clear the way before the Lord comes, before the Master comes, before Yahweh comes. And so we see this, this picture right here at the end of, of, it's very interesting, isn't it, that we come to the end of, of our Old Testament, to Malachi, and he makes reference, the clearest reference to John the Baptist, who's the first, one of the first people we meet when we come to the New Testament. And so this 400-year silence in, the, in God's revelation is bridged, as it were, by these two people, this one person, this Elijah, and the Elijah was to come John the Baptist. And so we begin there with John the Baptist. But notice with me also in chapter 3 and verse 1, there's another messenger, and I believe it's a second messenger, a different messenger. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, that is Elijah, John the Baptist. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. We see that in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, wait a minute. Now we've got a messenger of the covenant. Is this again John the Baptist? I don't think so. I believe that this messenger of the covenant, though associated with the coming of Elijah, is Christ. The one who comes with God's ultimate message. John chapter 1, verse 1, the word that was with us, the word that was with God, and the word was God, and the word which became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Or as the writer of Hebrews writes, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us 
in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the outshining, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So this one who is the word is, is the one who is the messenger of the covenant. So I believe we have two messengers here, one that comes before and one that is the one who brings the word. Then chapter three and verse well, that's chapter three and verse one, then we also have Christ will come to judge the earth. And that's again in chapter three, verse two. There's a day coming uh, that will be a day of judgment. He will be like a refiner's fire. And for those of you who listened to Handel's Messiah not too long ago, here's the, the passage that is being quoted. He is, and I won't try to even sing it. The, the refiner's fire and that fuller's soap. He's going to come purifying his people. He's going to come like one who takes silver and takes away all the dross. And there will be then people who can offer righteous sacrifices. So he's going to come. And then in chapter 4 and verse 2, that that picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as one who comes with healing in his wings. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. A picture again, I believe, of the Lord Jesus Christ coming in his saving work. But then certainly, again, a picture of what's yet to come. And he will judge all who violate the law. Not only will he come to heal his people, but he will come to judge those who stand against God. And that reminds us of Jesus' own words in John chapter 5. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The one who will judge us on the last day will be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, now let's turn to the outline and look at the outline of the, of the book of, of Malachi. And we have three basic parts uh, I still remember, I think it was when Pastor Blaze preached on uh, Korah and Co. I believe it was. He said, I have three points. I have an introduction, I have a body, and I have a conclusion. That was my introduction, now to my body. Well, that's kind of what Malachi does, right? He gives us an introduction. The oracle of the word of Yahweh of Israel through Malachi. Boom, there he is. Okay, now let's get into the body. And the rest of the most major part of it is the body, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, 3, in which we have these six disputations, and that's the word that's used frequently, and I, I like that word, and then, uh, and then the final conclusion in verses 4 through 6 at the end of chapter 4. The introduction, it does highlight some things for us in the fact that this is an inspired word of God. He uses the, the, the language that's used by the other prophets. This is an oracle. It is the word of Yahweh. It's not his own words that he's come, but it comes through a man. And so we want to understand the man's heart, but the man's heart is really reflecting God's heart. And so we see that uh, throughout this particular book. Now, notice with me, let me just read verses 2 through 5 and, and, and get a feel for what this book is like, because it pretty much follows the same basic pattern. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved me, loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness? Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. 
and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so this is the kind of disputation. God makes a statement, then he he says, this is how you respond to my statement. It's a question that they raise about the statement that was just made. And then God goes on to give an answer to their question that they raise. And that's pretty much a standard structure for this particular book. And as one man described it, this is a striking and creative style. There's no other book that's built on that style throughout. Now there's Q&A at different places, but the whole book is, is that way. And really, there's no Q&A going on. It's, it's, I'm going to cue you, and then I'm going to tell you what the answer is. And so, it, but let me just say that this is more than just a rhetorical device by Malachi. It is a rhetorical device, but it's more than a rhetorical device, because it's God who is saying, but you say. And God's saying, I know what's in your heart. And here I'm exposing your heart with the question that I know you would be asking. God did not appear to give success to his people. Thus, discouragement has set in with moral lapses. And God's prophet, Malachi, on God's behalf, challenges those moral lapses. So six disputations. The first, divine love Defended. You've got that in your notes there. Another way of looking at that is their part of it, they distrusted God's covenant love. Chapter 1, 2 through 5, or 2 through 6. It's really, or 2 through 5, this particular one. There's, there's, now, I will say that if you look at different commentaries, they break them down slightly differently, but it's usually just one verse uh, that goes one way or the other. But notice in this first section that I just read, the divine love defended. God says, I loved you, but they doubt his love. They question his love. So how do you love us? Remember, we're, we've been in captivity for over 70 years. We've just come back. We're small. We're despised. We're, the, the temple is a little bitty thing. It's not what it once was. And, and we've got opponents that are all around us. And we're paying taxes. And there's still these, these big bullies that are, that are ruling over us. God says, well, remember what I did. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And when those two were born, and we read of it in Genesis, Esau's descendants became Edomites. Edomites became enemies of God. And when they, remember we saw back in one of the other prophets, how they they sat down, tear it to the ground, burn it to the ground, burn it to the ground. They were cheering on those who were attacking Israel, attacking Judah. And so God says, where are they now? My disposition toward them in Esau has come to pass. And they might be bold enough to think, we'll rebuild. He says, no, you won't. Esau and Edom were judged without any possibility of being recovered. God highlights for us in this, and he says this is going to show forth even beyond. Even there, Israel's even going to recognize it. Because in verse 5, he says, your eyes will see this, and you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God is not just the God of Israel. He's not a local God to a little piece of land there in the Middle East. He's a God over all the nations. And that's what needs to be highlighted here. Now, let me just say, and this is highlighted in a number of the books as well, a wrong understanding of God's love will affect your worship 
and will affect your morality. And that's, I think, the point. It's why he starts with this. Wants them to have a right understanding of the love of God. A sovereign, unchanging, abiding love. So divine love defended. He says, I have loved you. Look at what I've done. But then we see in chapter 1, 6 through chapter 2, verse 9, corrupt priests exposed and condemned. Corrupt priests exposed and condemned. Or we could look at it from the side of the sin. They despised God's worship and defiled his name. Follow along as I read because it's just evident and I think it's important that we hear the very words here. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? So God makes a statement. He, he then challenges them. Thus says Yahweh of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of Yahweh is to be despised. It's light. It's nothing. It's, it's to be cast off. It's not really thought of important. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would, you, would he receive you kindly, says Yahweh of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may have be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, he will receive any of you kindly, says Yahweh of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh of hosts, nor will I accept this offering from you, or an offering from you. From the rising of the sun to the even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says Yahweh of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame and sick, so that you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says Yahweh? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to, to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. We'll stop there. Corrupt priests were corrupting the worship of God. The priests didn't reverence or respect or have fear of the true God. They were unconcerned with God's standards. It didn't have to be a perfect animal. It didn't have to be the animal that, that God had called for. And when God brings up this matter of the governor, it's as though to say to them, you have more respect for the human authorities than you do for me. That's why he comes at the end and says, I'm a great king. I'm over any king you could imagine, and certainly over all those governors you're so concerned about. Malachi is not such a ritualist, though, that he says, you've got to keep going with these routines, even though they're, they're messed up. Keep doing them. No, he says, it'd be better that there were no worship at all 
than what you're offering to me. Now notice, they are not offering pigs. They are not offering something contrary to God's law other than they're not taking God's commandments seriously. They're not following through. They're offering the right thing, but it's a defiled thing. It's a, it's a lame thing. It's, a, it's an animal that is not pure. It doesn't reflect, if we could really say this, it doesn't reflect well upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate picture that's being, the, the, the ultimate reality that's being pictured here. God's reputation is at stake. He says, the nations, my name needs to be feared among the nations, and you're not fearing me even as you worship me. Respect, fear, reverence is important to worship. And it manifests itself in what is offered and how it's offered. It is not correct to say only, merely, God is concerned about the heart. He is concerned about the heart. But he's concerned about more than the heart. Because the heart needs to reflect itself in obedience. And offering unto him the sacrifices that are acceptable to him through Jesus Christ, according to his standard, in his appropriate way. Just like Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Sheep from all the folds. You see, they were, getting, they were saying it's tiresome, it's wearisome, it's too burdensome to follow all those rules to that kind of detail. To be that strict in worship is too tiresome. We need freedom. We need to be easier. That's what he's saying. It's a hardship to worship God according to his standards. And it almost has the ring of, it's boring to do so. And so they're offering hypocritical, half-hearted worship. And it may be that it's sincere, but it's sincerely unacceptable. In verse 14, what is true of the priests is true also of the people. Basically, I think what happens happening, the priests are giving the people what they want. You want an easy worship? I'll give you easy. Don't worry about all those standards that God says about holiness and strictness. Don't worry about that. We'll just, we'll just come and we'll just do what, what, what works well. Oh, and you want to keep that ram that's really, that's really going to produce more offspring for you and it's really strong? You can keep that one and give that other weak one to God. God doesn't want your leftovers, he's saying. He wants your best. Don't cheat God with cheap I'm going to use the word inauthentic worship. Authentic worship, again, as I've said before, authentic worship is not self-satisfying worship. It is God-satisfying worship. Authentic means what does God require? What is the original? What does he expect? And how close are we to that? That's what authentic worship is. He says, I want authentic worship. God says, I don't want this self-serving worship. And God is not fooled. He can see right through it. And he's very strict about it. He says, he cursed be the swindler. Those are strong words. And then we go on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, to a slight change. We continue to talk to the priests, but instead of talking about the worship that they're offering, he goes on to speak about their role as instructors. 
And they are to be the ones who, who teach others about the holiness of God and about the ways of worship and, and what God expects of his people. And they're supposed to be instructing them, but instead they're bringing a curse. Notice how many times he says in one verse, verse 2, he speaks of a curse. He says, if you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says Yahweh of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because he already knows what they've done because you are not taking it to heart. And then notice it's not just the one generation. He goes on to say, Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces and refuse on your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. He says, God says it takes worship very seriously. And the instruction that the priests are supposed to give, if if they're twisting God's truth in order to, to make it palatable to people, give the people what they want. Don't offend anybody. You might you might lose something if you offend them. That is money that comes into the the coffers, per se. You see, what's the focus here is, he says, the problem isn't, the, the problem is, it's not honoring to me. I'm not the focus of your instruction. I'm not the focus of your worship. In fact, You're violating the covenant to Levi, which is probably the covenant that speaks of the fact that God says they will have no inheritance but me. And this is what you're violating. You really don't want me, do you? I'm not enough. Not only do they pervert the worship of God, they instruct others to do the same. They said what the people wanted to hear. And they avoided offending anyone. So verse 9 gives us a summary. Chapter 2, verse 9 gives us a summary of, of God's dealings with the priests. He said, God will bring on them what they are going to, what they were doing toward him. Notice verse 9. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. You're showing partiality. You're pleasing people rather than me. You're not keeping my ways. You're not keeping my instruction, giving my instruction, and therefore, you despised me, you shall be despised. One man, or one of the uh, lexicons said this, the person who acts contrary to the community founded on the fear of the Lord must be cut off from it. Those who treat the Lord with contempt will themselves be held contemptible by him. They despised Yahweh by despising his word. Another man in the Old Testament did that. He despised God's covenant God's commandments regarding marriage and sexual purity. And he despised God's laws about who he could sleep with and who he couldn't. And in doing so, it says David despised Yahweh. When we treat lightly God's commands, however much we want to cut the corners off them, especially in terms of worship, that's the the context here, we're in danger We're in danger because we are despising Yahweh himself, God himself. But then that moves on to see the the third of the uh, 
disputations, a covenant infidelity exposed and condemned. And this, and in this section, the word, my covenant, my covenant, my covenant, covenant of your father's covenant, he's highlighting this reality of the relationship. They were dissatisfied with God's covenant relationships. They didn't like the way God had ordered things. It wasn't helpful to them. So we read in verse 10, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do you deal treacherously? And that word, I like it. I was listening to a man preach, and he, 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 whatever his translation was, it says, They have broken faith. They have broken faith. Why do you break faith, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? You see, he said, now, the, now he's turning, he said, from their direct relationship to him to their relationships to those around them. This covenant-making God that they've despised is manifesting itself in the way that they despise the covenants and the relationships with others. He's now addressing not the priests, but all of God's people. He's the creator and father of all. And they are violating this covenant. How are they violating the covenant? It says in verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously. They have broken faith and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, this could either be a spiritual infidelity that could be speaking of the fact that the nation has gone out after foreign gods. Or it could be that it's speaking of the the marital uh, problem of them marrying uh, pagan women, which they were guilty of doing both. And so there's there's a spiritual violation. There's a violation of God's command as to how he said they should order their relationship. But then he goes on in verses 12 to 16 to speak of a violation of the marriage covenants. He says they've been unfaithful in their own marriage covenants. Verse 13. This is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Why doesn't he take our offerings? We're being so faithful in offering these things, coming to this temple. Oh yeah, they're a little bit uh, broken leg here, a little bit of, of uncleanness there, but at least we're coming, we're coming, and why isn't he not accepting us? Well, this time God says, because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, whom you have broken faith. And later in verse 16, for I hate divorce and him who covers his garment with wrong. They were being unfaithful in their marriage covenants to their wives. They were breaking faith in their marriage relationships. It seems that they may have just been quickly divorcing, you know, burnt toast, you're out, right? Your certificate of divorce, I don't like burnt toast. That's the last burnt sacrifice I'm having for breakfast. Or it could be that it's a matter of they're just being completely unfaithful and, and, and sleeping around and enjoying relationships with others besides their wives. But notice with me too what he says in verse 15. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. So those whom the Spirit really works in, they maintain their marital commitments, their marital covenants. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your, not your marriage, not your actions, your spirit. You can violate 
your covenant with your wife or with your husband in your heart. I'm not saying that that gives grounds for divorce. But I am saying it's contrary to the covenant relationship you've made of simple devotion to one another, forsaking all others. I cling to you. See what God is saying? Worshiping me is not divorced from the way you treat your wife out there. You treat your wife one way or you treat your husband one way out there and then you come into my house and think I'm going to accept that? That's not acceptable. And so, brethren, we need to guard our hearts, guard our spirits in our marriages. And if you're single and who you want to marry, who you're willing to marry, don't go after the daughter of a foreign god. Well, she's, she's cute. Maybe she'll believe. Maybe he'll believe. If I just do this, then maybe. Well, I know it's a church he goes to that's really kind of off. Or I know it's the church that she goes to that's, that really holds the false doctrine. But then once we're married, that'll all change. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. God says, be careful about who, you've, who you pursue. Be careful who you marry. Because when you marry, you've made a covenant. Be careful how you live within that covenant. He goes on in verses 17 to 3, 6 to talk about false accusations. They dismissed God's judgment, the, God's justice. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, he says. He says, now I'm one who's wearied. How have we wearied you? Everyone who does evil is good and in the sight of Yahweh and he delights in him. Or where is the God of justice? He said, wait a minute, do you see? You're supposed to be a God of justice. And here we are in captivity or here we're even back from captivity. and We don't have the freedom we ought to have. We're, we're, we're still in bondage. Things haven't gone the way that I thought they should have gone. You're not blessing me the way I thought you should have. I am falling. Things have fallen very far short of what I think is righteous. Now think about it for a minute. The people of God were judged by whom? Who took the people of Israel into captivity? That's an open question. I'll actually ask. Who's, who did it? Somebody other than one of my pastors. <laughs> who took them into captivity? What's the, na- what's the nation? No, Israel. Assyria. Assyria, thank you. The Assyrians did, right? Were they a godly nation? No. <laughs> And who took Judah into captivity? There you go. What's it now? Babylon. The the Chaldeans. Yeah. Were they a godly people? No. Did God use them for godly purposes? Yes. Did he chastise his people by ungodly rulers? Yes. Does that mean that God is unjust? No. You get in the picture. This is what Malachi is saying. This is what God is saying about them. You're judging me that I'm not doing things fairly. You don't like my form of justice. Well, let me tell you something. The day of justice is coming. And it's going to be severe. He says in chapter 3 and verse 2, Who can endure the day of his coming? He's coming. The judge is coming. The messenger of the covenant is coming. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. Do you think purification is a, is a pleasant process? Sometimes it might be pleasant, but a lot of times it's not. It's a painful process. God does that, that he might have a righteous people who can offer up to him holy sacrifices acceptable to him through Jesus Christ. He says, day is coming. And when the day comes, he says in verse 5, he says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earners and the wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. He says, I'm going to be the very witness against them on the day of judgment. And it's not going to go well for them. Your false accusations about me being a God of injustice don't hold water. Well, I thought I'd get through it, but I didn't. <coughs> Brethren, it, this, this prophecy is, is incredibly relevant for us, challenging to us. But let me point out in the end here that look at the comfort and the encouragement. It points us to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And I'll just say this with the few moments that are left to me. We have here at the beginning of chapter 3 something called the prophetic perspective. It's a flattened perspective. He's looking out in the distance and he sees two huge peaks. The messenger is going to come. And he's going to have healing in his wings. And it's going to be right after Elijah comes on the scene. And then there's going to be a great day of judgment which everything is going to be made right. And he sees them as though they're one. One range. But they're not. And we're sitting in between. Elijah has come. The remedy, the solution has come in the person of the messenger of the covenant. God enfleshed has come. And here's the answer for all of these sins. Before the great day of judgment comes. You see, there's hope in the midst of this for us, and there's going to be more hope toward the end of this. There's hope here in the fact that we stand seeing that Christ Jesus has come, and he's brought not judgment. He came not to judge the earth, but to save. What a gracious and amazing God. He has not changed. We are not consumed. Instead, he so loved his created order that he sent his Son into that order that those who believe on him could be saved. That is love. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his only begotten son, gave his son as a propitiation for us. Well, with that, we'll close and ask God to bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, write your word upon our hearts and continue to help us even in this next hour to be diligent to worship you aright. Father, cleanse us of all of our sins. Father, grant unto us faith to believe whatever your word has to say to us this morning. Father, grant that as we approach you, we would approach you with boldness through Jesus Christ, with joy and the delight of being in your presence, and yet with a holy reverence, with reverence and awe, that we would honor you as our God who is in heaven, who is also our heavenly Father. And so come, meet with us, and minister to us through your servant and in our worship for the glory of our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.